Welcome to the Eastern Shore. I'm Brock Winstead. Today on the show, a road trip in search of butterflies and how that gave us Lolita. The author Vladimir Nabokov, or as we all pronounce it in America, Nabokov, was born and grew up in Russia, lived in Germany and then France until the Nazis started taking over, and in 1940 fled to the United States with his wife, who was Jewish, and their son. He'd written several books in Russian before he arrived in the U.S., but he did not write in English, he was not known as an author here, and he had few friends or professional connections. Of course, we know now that he became one of the 20th century's greatest writers in English, but that didn't happen overnight. It took years, almost 20 years, in fact, before he became THE Vladimir Nabokov, and it took many, many trips around the United States chasing butterflies. A new book, Nabokov in America, by author Robert Roper, explores the way that Nabokov's travels around this country, his trips looking for butterflies, fed his writing and turned him into the author that we know now. Roper tells the story of Nabokov's 20 years in America, retraces some of his travels in the Mountain West, and makes the argument that his greatest work was inspired, really made possible, by those travels and Nabokov's connections with his adopted home. I spoke with Robert Roper, who lives in Berkeley, for this week's show. We talked about how he came to write this book about Nabokov, what he learned writing it, and about some of Roper's other work, his novels and his teaching. We talked about all this in a bar, so there's some background noise here, because sometimes that's what happens. Here's Robert Roper on the Eastern Shore. Robert Roper, your new book, Nabokov in America, is about the roughly 20 years that the author, Vladimir Nabokov, spent living and working in the United States. What drew you to write about Nabokov and that period of his life? I've been a, uh, a reader of, of him for a long time. I, lo- I love some of his books. Not all. Some, some of his books I really don't warm to at all. But others I think are terrific. So I've, I've had this uh, lasting interest in him. I think 
I fell for some of Nabokov's books when I was, I think, you know, maybe when I was a teenager, I, you know, stumbled upon something. And then when I was in college, I don't think we read any Nabokov, but right after I was in college, I read, I started reading him and um, just uh, made a very powerful impression on me. And uh, and then um, I was kind of curious, I, I'm, uh, I'm a rock climber. I, I do a fair amount of climbing in the West, you know, in the Tetons, in the, in the Sierra Nevada, other places. And I, I noticed or I found mention in some Alpine journal that a Dmitry Nabokov was a very active climber. And I, is this the um, ice hockey goalie or is it the other? Yeah, no, it was the other Dmitry Nabokov, Vladimir's son. And he was, uh, he was a uh, very accomplished and very, very active uh, um, climber. He put up a, a number of first ascents in the Selkirks, which is a, a mountain range in, in Canada. So I thought that, that was just kind of curious that Nabokov's son, who he raised in America, was you know, a climber. And then I discovered that the family, the three of them, Vladimir and Vera and Dmitri, traveled a lot in the West, particularly over this 20-year period, 1940 to 1960. And while Vladimir was hunting butterflies above 11,000 feet, because uh, the particular kind of butterfly he liked thrives up there, uh, Dimitri was going off and rock climbing. So it was just kind of curious that there was something that I was interested in, and, and I love these places that they went to. So somehow that led me to start doing a little research. And, you know... Chewed it over for a while, and I thought, well, he's been very carefully biographized, Nabokov. Uh, although the big two-volume biography uh, by Brian Boyd dates from 1990 and 1991, so it's a little out of date in some ways. So I finally talked myself and talked a publisher or two into, you know, bankrolling me and, and seeing if there was a book in it. Um, so that's that's kind of how it, how it came about. So. Nabokov had this he had a fascinating life from start to finish. He's one of the most improbable people about whom I know anything at all. Uh, just the, the the course of his life and his range of interest. And you just said he was basically driving around the country looking for butterflies. Why was he looking for butterflies? Well, he was this crazed butterfly collector. Just as his son became a crazed rock climber, he had this very active passion and Nabokov was born 1899 to an extremely wealthy minor nobility family in St. Petersburg. Uh, his father was very prominent as a, a liberal journalist, and the parents uh, were uh, Anglophile, extremely Anglophile. And one of the things they did was, as, as sort of late Victorians, they were amateur naturalists, and they were passionate butterfly collectors. So they passed it on to the to the boy, and he he became an extremely skilled, very significant lepidopterist. He wrote papers that are uh, very respected now and have uh, led into areas of genetic testing that are very fruitful for contemporary scientists. So, so it was like a hobby that he got from his from his parents, and then you know it just never abated. But I think if you look at Nabokov, you see this is a guy with an extremely healthy ego. Okay. I think in, in, my, in my book, I characterize him as the kind of person who, uh, you know, like if you have an eight-year-old kid, you know, they love to write their name in their notebook over and over again. Well, Nabokov had that 
strain in his personality to the end of his life. And so the fact that he was crazy about butterflies when he was seven and eight, it didn't mean he outgrew it. He just got deeper and deeper and deeper into it. So when he came to, came to America by, you may know, by extraordinary series of events, escaping, escaping the Nazis, essentially. He had a Jewish wife and a Jewish son, and they got out on the last boat to America from France in May of 1940, exactly 75 years ago. But he had secretly been dreaming of America f for his whole life up to that point, mainly because he wanted to hunt, hunt butterflies. He comes to America, he and his wife and uh, son, as refugees from the Nazis, married to a Jewish woman. They flee France just before Germany completes its invasion and occupation of France in 1940. Right, two weeks before. Did he write about or talk about what it felt like when they made that journey to America? I mean, in, in personal correspondence, he, he occasionally reflected on it and said, uh, like, he, he had a sister who remained in Europe who survived the war and became a translator at, for the UN in Geneva. And he wrote to her, I think, the most revealing letters he wrote to anybody other than his wife. And, uh, and he wrote her, frankly, said, I, I adore it here. I love America. America is a place where you can, where you can breathe. You can meet people and speak on it on a soulful level, um, and where you know it's chance. There's a chance to live a normal life, and uh, I desperately want to bring you over here. She had a young son, and uh, he tried, but she eventually became you know after the war became comfortable there in Europe. So she didn't need to come over. But he reflected. He often said that he considered himself American. He loved America. Anybody who has read Lolita know that, knows that it was not a, uh, an all-encompassing and all-forgiving, blinkered embrace of America. Uh, I mean, he has hysterically funny things to say about the oddities and absurdities of life, life here. But, uh, but it was, uh, he was deeply grateful for the fates that had brought him here, just by the skin of his teeth. So in his time, for most of his time in the United States, he was driving all around the country, in part looking for butterflies. Was he conscious of these travels as acts of coming to know America in some way? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, we have to admit that uh, Nabokov was one of the most hyper-conscious people of the 20th century. So I, I think he was... And, and the... the um, these travels enter directly into the novels that he wrote here. Uh, you know, clearly they in, they're all over Lolita. I mean, Lolita is about road trips. You know, the evil pedophile Humbert Humbert takes his stepdaughter, his sex slave, and goes on a, a drive about in the country for two years, following very closely the recommendations of the AAA uh, 1947, 1940s AAA guides: where to stay, what motor courts to stay at, what attractions to visit, uh, and then the motels themselves uh, enter into Lolita. But they're also all over Panin, uh, this great comic campus novel that he wrote, and also um, his acquaintance with America and uh, these elements of America are are all over Pale Fire in his other great American novel. So. Was he uh, on the road hunting butterflies in the summers because he was doing research? No, he was doing that because he 
saw this vast country that fascinated him, and he wanted to get out there, hunt butterflies, but also see all these queer Americans and, you know, see, listen to how they talked. And it was just, he was a curious man, very, very, very curious guy. I think it's fun to compare him to other famous European emigre intellectuals of the same vintage. Brecht and Thomas Mann and all kinds of other folks who luckily got out in the late 30s. But most of them then huddled in New York and spoke German and Russian with, their, with the people they saw every day. And, and Americans frightened them, frankly. They frightened them. And then there's another category, mostly writers and composers, who sort of skipped the whole country, landed in New York, and then went to Hollywood. So Nabokov is completely unlike that. He had experience of New York. You know, he spent a lot of time in New York, and he taught school in the Eastern Seaboard at Wellesley and Cornell and Harvard. But he spent as much time in the heartland, in the interior, as he could. There's really no comparable famous artistic emigre of that period who, who did what he did, who, who had his reasons to encounter, you know, the, the real America, and did. In writing this book and researching and writing this book, you retraced some of the trips that Nabokov and his family took. Where are some of the places you went? Yeah, that was great fun. I went first to uh, Alta, Utah. Alta is now, you know, wonderful uh, uh, ski resort, great powder. But it was uh, in 1943 when he spent a summer there. It was a, a funky little wooden lodge that was owned by Jay Lachlan of New Directions, the publisher, who was publishing a couple of books by Nabokov at the time. And, and uh, Nabokov said to him, you know, I want to collect, you know, where should I go this summer? And, and Lachlan said, well, you know, I'll, I'll rent you a room in my, you know, in the summer and there's nobody there. So I, w- I went and snooped around and I, um, I hiked up a mountain that Lachlan and Nabokov hiked up. Uh, their relationship was very fraught. Nabokov was a few years older than Lachlan. Lachlan, this uh, son of great wealth, of a, a steel-making family uh, at Harvard, founded New Directions and began publishing all these modernists, usually at, at the advice of Ezra Pound. So uh, he had gotten onto Nabokov very quickly, but he was a kind of a stubborn guy, and he didn't pay his writers very well. And Nabokov, you know, he wanted to be treated like a great master, which is what, the way he saw himself. I mean, he, he had written some very estimable novels, all in Russian. So he was really sort of starting from point zero in America. So they had a very competitive, I wouldn't even call it a friendship. And uh, Nabokov challenged him to hike to the top of this mountain one day. And it's a very serious hike. It's, a, you know, it's probably the most difficult peak bag in the Wasatch um, you know, there's no water beyond the trailhead. Uh, it takes eight or nine hours to get up there. You know, it's 5,000 feet of gain. So, you know, and they had various accidents and nearly fatal uh, accident near the summit uh, where Nabokov slid a long way on an ice field. But anyway, so, so I went to, to, to Alta and then other places in Utah because he and other summers he came out and stayed, and I was often able to find the actual cabins uh, he rented or the motels he stayed at. I, I'd say his favorite state was Wyoming. 
which happens just happens to have been, you know, the least populated American state. It was very, very primitive in those days. I mean, he talks, there's a town where they stayed a couple of times, a couple of summers, Afton. It's on the Idaho border. And uh, he wrote to Edmund Wilson saying that uh, the road to Afton is paved, <laughs> which made it unusual because most of the roads they were riding on there were dirt, sand. You know, and I also followed him up into Canada, uh, uh, up into Montana, and I went to a lot of places where he collected in, in Colorado. So that was great fun. You know, I spent a few weeks doing that. Uh, you know, I put five or 6,000 miles on my car. The Nabokovs, on a series of cars, drove over 200,000 miles in roughly 15 summers of trips. Some, so I had a mini version of their, their adventures, but... Um, uh, it was great fun. And I'm not sure it didn't necessarily lead to great discoveries, you know, that fed directly into the into the narrative I wrote, but it was, it was great fun. You were, in a sense, trying to kind of see what he saw as he saw it. You were trying to retrace the steps, but do you feel like you got a sense of what it might have been like for him to be there and see these places? Well, if there's any part of America that is unchanged enough so that we can at least have an idea of how it looked in 1943 or 1951, it is the high mountain west, the intermountain west. Towns like Afton. Afton had a population of 600 in 19... 50, and now it has a population of, I don't know, 800. So, and, uh, and as I said, I found a lot of the motels where they stayed, and they're still functioning. So I did see a lot of terrain and, and walked a lot of terrain. I mean, as soon as he could, they, they would come to a town, they'd find a motel, they'd camp out there for a couple of weeks, and the next morning he was off walking up into the wilderness areas. Now, because we protect or have protected a lot of our wilderness areas in America, I could still walk trails and climb peaks, that, and they still look the same. But as far as seeing with his eyes, then you're getting into epistemological questions that Nabokov is, is a very inventive writer about. So I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm, I was able or even trying to recreate his consciousness. No. The bulk of your research for the book was not driving around the Mountain West. It was sitting with uh, his writing and other people's writing about Nabokov and with his correspondence. In, in that correspondence, is that where he would reveal the, his impressions of America sort of as they were being formed? Well, there, I mean, his, his, uh, his great correspondent until they fell apart was Edmund Wilson. His letters to Wilson and Wilson's letters to his are... Uh, a fabulous source. They're tremendously entertaining. And so Nabokov does write a certain number of letters from his trips, and, and he says very funny, interesting things. They, they were very interesting to me as a guy who was writing a book about it. But I think he was actually so happy, so ecstatic when he was on these trips that he didn't really write about it that much. He would just say, you know, he'd write something to the kind of famously fat and gouty Edmund Wilson saying, I've, I walked 12 to 18 miles a day up here in Wyoming. Uh, you know, I've, I've dropped 20 pounds. I'm tan all over. You know, Edmund, you really should try this. Uh, butterfly cutting is really fun. But, but he, didn't, he just didn't really want to communicate that happiness. I mean, the joy that Nabokov felt in life in this material world is all over his books. But he didn't, he didn't particularly report on those trips and his letters to friends. 
your book is not just a travel log. You are making an argument that one can draw a formative or inspirational link between Nabokov's travels around America and his writing. How does that inspiration manifest itself in his work? Well, here's like one, one example. I, my book makes a lot of arguments, and uh, there are a lot of issues about Nabokov that are fascinating to, to scholars, and, and thank, thank goodness to a lot of readers, too. But one thing I, I do say is that um, his greatest work is his American work. Was this an especially productive time yeah, relative was, to the rest yeah, of Yeah, it was, I mean, an astonishing and gloriously productive period for him. We, we need to remember that he arrived in America, a Russian writer in the Russian language. And after a very difficult period of a few years, finally felt his English was up to speed. And he began writing after that point exclusively in, in, in English, except for a few poems in Russian. So there's that, that change. But uh, I think his uh, America added backstory and amplitude to some of his obsessions uh, that he had treated in earlier books, but not very well. One example is uh, he wrote a, another a novella about a pedophile. It's called The Enchanter. He wrote that uh, in Russian uh, while he was living in France in the late 30s. And it, it, was never, it never found a publisher. It wasn't that good. It bears a lot of resemblance to Lolita, story of a man who marries a, uh, a woman who dies and then he inherits her daughter who, he, who is the real object of his, his fascination. And it's kind of uh, a stillborn story. Good writing, interesting, but in America, it's not like he dusted it off and turned it into Lolita. It's that he started compulsively writing this new story from the, uh, uh, on, on the exact same basis, except in America it was transformed. Now, one thing, for example, in America we have this, this um, now not much thought of, but a very deep history of Indian captivity novels. I mean, our great popular literature before the American Renaissance people came along, Poe and Emerson and Melville and Hawthorne, was Indian uh, abduction novels. These are stories usually about a woman, a pioneer wife who goes out to, you know, pump some water one evening and there are some engines and they grab her by the hair and drag her off. And uh, novels are written about this and they always have a very heightened sexual undertone. What, what were those Indians doing to her, you know? And then there are many, many stories of, of actual abductees who didn't want to return. Hundreds and hundreds of novels essentially on this theme were written in many, 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 many editions. So Nabokov, I don't know that he knew about that, although he had read he'd read Fenimore Cooper and he had read other writers who wrote about abductions, Indian abductions, and uh, so he starts writing a story of abduction, and which is of course all sexual, not not just backstory or undertone. I mean it's a very disturbingly frank sexual account. So that stillborn story in Europe came to life shockingly. I mean, really shockingly to him, too. Uh, his wife was very disturbed that he was writing, writing this, and he was so disturbed that twice he attempted to burn the manuscript. Now, how sincere he was, I don't know, but he 
lit the match and he was stuffing the paper into like a 55 gallon oil drum. And we know not just because Vera came out and said, what the hell are you doing? And stamped out the fires, you know, but also because uh, a young student had been hired to clean their apartment and saw it happen. So he was very disturbed about what was coming out of his imagination. He knew just how iconoclastic, how, how sensationalistic it was. So America fed him meaning to a story that he had already been trying to write for years. Did people recognize him as he was traveling around America? Does he write or talk about that at all? No, no. he was completely anonymous, completely anonymous. Now, he was known, when he arrived in America, he was known to other Russian emigres. Maybe there were a hundred of them, um, and half of them hated him. No, he had very few contacts here in America, very few. He was very lucky, tremendously lucky, in that his cousin, Nicholas Nabokov, who had arrived a couple of years before him and was a composer, a very gifted composer who had a very interesting career himself, befriended Edmund Wilson, had a house next to, across the road from Wilson's uh, uh, in uh, Cape Cod, and chatted up Wilson and said, oh, I have a cousin, uh, I hope he can get out of Europe, he's a pretty good writer. And Wilson happened to be crazy about all things Russian at that point. And so as soon as Vladimir came, the door was open to meet the, the most powerful and the most interesting critical, literary critical voice in America. So, no, he wasn't known. And Wilson, who was famously generous towards writers who he, he liked or esteemed, opened many doors and the most important door was that he, he engineered work and a special arrangement for Nabokov with the New Yorker. Then is now, you know, the most important popular literary journal. So, so but no, no, he was completely anonymous. Even, even after, after Lolita came out, Lolita was first published in France because everybody refused to publish it here. It was published in France by a low, rate, low house that published a lot of pornography, Olympia Press, 1955. But in 1958, finally, an American publisher, Putnam's Sons, was you know, brave enough to bring it out. And at that point, he became a celebrity. Life magazine came to his little rented house in Ithaca and took photos of them. And suddenly, there were references being made to Lolita and Nabokov, as everybody pronounced it, uh, on the Milton Berle show. And, you know, uh, Dean Martin was making jokes on his show about, you know, Lolita. So he became very swiftly a uh, world-renowned public figure. But that before that, up to the day before the book was published in 1958, he was unknown. So for the first 18 of his roughly 20 years in the United States, he was essentially an anonymous figure, figure sailing across the plains every summer. Right. Just another guy looking for butterflies with his family. That's right. Do you get the sense that he enjoyed the celebrity that came? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, the, the way he enjoyed it, uh, you know, he didn't enjoy it in the sense of a guy who then goes out and starts sniffing cocaine and carrying on with a lot of other women. No, he was, a, he was a writer, a very serious writer, and he was very aware of what a curveball this could be. And so he was carefully hard at work on long-term projects when it happened. You know, when the Lolita bomb went off and he did not deviate, he carried through on those projects. He was, and he was old enough, you know, he's almost 60, 
in a very solid, loving, immensely rich marriage, you know, emotionally rich. So he was well guarded against the worst warping effects of that. So Nabokov had a tremendously productive two decades in the United States, during which he produced the work that he is best known for, but he left. He left in 1960, 1961? Yeah. Why? Well, I think the short answer is that Dimitri grew up to be this big, handsome, strapping guy, and he went to Harvard, and then he was, a, he was very gifted musically, and he became an opera singer. And he was really very good, and uh, uh, he was advised to go to seek further training in, in Italy. And he did, and he was accepted as a student, and uh, he appeared, his debut was with Pavarotti. I mean, he, you know, he was, he, he was very credible basso, basso profundo. So he went to Europe, and his parents, who, were, who adored him, wanted to be near him. So they went to to live in Switzerland in a five-star hotel on the lake, Lake Geneva, and uh, just to be near him. And it was a temporary arrangement, but it was so comfortable that he didn't have to teach anymore. And he had a sister there in Switzerland, and, and the world came to him, really. I mean, he had become this world figure. So anybody he wanted to see, even Edmund Wilson, would troop over there. So uh, he came back a couple of times, one time to, to write the screenplay for Kubrick's Lolita. You know, and they kept saying, well, this is temporary. We haven't unpacked our bo- boxes. They left a lot of their belongings in storage in Ithaca. We're going to be coming back. But at a certain point, you know, it's, they were also getting older. So they were very comfortable there, and they stayed. There are, you know, other elements in their decision, but I think that basically it was following their son, and then it was comfortable. Did he ever make any more butterfly-seeking trips around the American West? No, he didn't, but um, about uh, 10 years after he moved to Europe, let's say 70 or 72, a publisher asked him, you know, I'm desperate to publish anything by you. Is there anything you'd like to do? And he said, well, you know, I wrote a lot of papers about about butterflies in America. If you will finance me on it, you know, there's some collections that I want to make, you know, maybe we can work something out. And he was very serious about that. He wrote a book proposal and everything. And he was, you could see him rubbing his hands, uh, you know, another chance to go collect in the Rockies on a publisher's dime. But uh, it fell through for various reasons. And uh, so he was, you know, up, up into his last decade, he was looking for reasons to come back. They also, the, uh, the Nabokovs became, they were very disturbed about what was happening in America in the 60s. They, uh, Vera, more than Vladimir, was kind of, uh, you know, hated, rampaging, long-haired students breaking windows. To her, that meant, you know, it was like a street action in St. Petersburg in 1917. So they sort of convinced themselves that America was going to the dogs, and uh, they befriended William F. Buckley. And he sent them the National Review, gave them a gift subscription, and they used to read it like a holy text. So, you know, they were aging, extremely wealthy, extremely sophisticated Russo-Europeans, and America seemed to be blowing up. So for him, it was, you know, it was a little off-putting, and for her, it was very off-putting. You did not come to this book as a Nabokov scholar someone who had devoted your life to the study of his work and his life, but you immersed yourself in it, in his work and his life, 
over how many how much time did this take you? I think I was working on it for four or five years. It sounds like even after spending four or five years reading Nabokov's writing, writing about him, his correspondence, retracing his travels, you still feel a, a, a distance between you, the writer, and, and him as sort of your subject here. There is a, a wall between the two of you. It's funny, a uh, review a few days ago about the Nabokov book um, said that um, uh, unlike some other writers about Nabokov, I didn't fall into an Im- a bad imitation of his style of writing. And, uh, you know, t- to see the guy, or to try to see him and understand his writing, which is very complicated. I had a you know a hard time. I mean, he's, he raises a lot of complicated issues as a as a research subject, but to get through it, I, I had to uh, keep my distance from him and at the same time try to open myself intimately to what he was saying in his writing and also try to understand his life. But I don't know. I guess there are subjects that some some biographers fall into great problems. It hasn't happened to me yet. Do you find yourself with more to say about Nabokov? I don't know. It's still a little too close. Uh, the book has a, a very large footnote section, you know, about 60 pages of footnotes, which is stuffed with many essays about Nabokov, all kinds of other issues in, his, in the scholarship about him. So I, I had a great opportunity to say an awful lot that I feel and think about him. So I don't know that I, you know, at this moment I don't have anything else I want to, you know, any other book I want to write about him. But uh, it was just terrific fun to be in his company for four or five years. To be, I had to, had to reread some of the books I most love. I also had to reread some books I didn't like by him. But, uh, and then I read, uh, you know, this vast scholarship that's grown up about him by, you know, some very gifted scholars, uh, mostly American scholars. And uh, that was a pleasure. But I'd be surprised if I write another Nabokov book anytime soon. Well, you just had a novel come out less than two months ago, The, the Savage Professor, uh, and not your first novel. You've written how many novels at this point? Six or seven, I think. And three nonfiction? Right. Do you still think of yourself principally as a novelist? If I'm at work on a novel, I, I'm obviously a fiction writer, and then if the projects are going or... or Interesting. I'm very happy to be writing either kind of stuff. How did you find yourself with a Nabokov biography and a novel coming out within two months of each other? Yeah, that was kind of accidental. Uh, they were a little bit intertwined. I began the novel a little before I began the Nabokov book, and I would often work on it. Well, once I got into the Nabokov book and I had an advance and I needed to produce something in a you know, certain period of time, I considered that my main work. So I would work hard on that. But then I would arrive at periods when I really needed to go to libraries and research. And, not, you know, and there were you know, a couple of years when I wasn't writing. I was just taking notes. So then in the summers in particular, I would work on the novel. And sometimes, you know, it would sneak into the rest of the year, too. You know, I'd work for, on the novel for six months, but then I'd put it away. Then I'd get involved in the other one. And then, then there would arrive another period when I was somewhat free, and then I'd immediately pick up the novel again. So I wrote it in fits and starts. So they were kind of a um, little involved with each other, and one gave a vacation to the other. 
you had a kind of productive way to procrastinate on any given project at a time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Did you do promotional appearances and readings for the novel? I, yeah, I have, and in fact, I'm doing one tomorrow. Uh, I'm going to be at the Berkeley uh, Book Festival. And I'm going to be doing another one for The Savage Professor in a couple of weeks. And you're also doing that now for the Nabokov book. Right, right. Do you ever have to remind yourself, walking into an appearance, which one you're talking about? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's a a little confusing. Um, And also it it became confusing because the PR people for, for the novel have been communicating with the PR people for at Bloomsbury, the publisher of the Nabokov book, and they've they got me on this or that panel together and instructed me to arrive, you know, with both books. So I'm a, I'm a little little dizzy, but that, yeah. on the scale of problems. Yeah, it's not a <laughs> it's not a bad one. No, no, it's kind of fun. Now, while you were writing the Nabokov book and your most recent novel and your previous books, you were also teaching. Right. You've been teaching writing at Johns Hopkins for over a decade now. Uh-huh. Were you teaching composition or creative writing or nonfiction writing? What was most of, of your class load in that time? It was mostly fiction. Yeah, fiction workshop kind of writing. Yeah. So the teaching of writing in general has always fascinated me, in part because I, I, I don't know how you do it. When, you, know, you can teach some of the mechanics, maybe, but there's this fundamental aspect of creation and inspiration that goes into really any piece of writing. How do you teach that? I think I, I, I'm not sure I believe in the, the mystery the way you do. Uh, I think different people have different phrenological bumps. You know, a guy like Nabokov had a big bump for making up stories. Uh, and uh, other people, you know, they just naturally write fact-based, evidentiary kind of nonfiction stuff. So the students in my classes at Hopkins and also at Berkeley, where I've taught occasionally, um, are self-selected. They're, they think of themselves as creative writers. You know, they've, a lot of them have read passionately since they were like, you know, eight or nine. And, you know, they're dreaming of being writers. And, uh, you know, some are more gifted than others or, or have discovered that the family, the three of them, Vladimir and Vera and Dimitri, women on the street that we just rope in and forced to be creative writers. So they're, they're already, you know, thinking in a certain way. And some of them uh, have terrific imaginations Um, yeah you know and then there are basic things about just like we start with a lot of exercises about noticing things and you know paying attention and we read a lot too in my my classes uh you know really I, i teach literature as well as teach writing at the same time in writing the book about nabokov you spent you know four or five years all told on the process of researching and writing the book did you find that beginning to influence your own fiction writing that you were doing at the time? A, a little bit, um, just in this sense. Um, Nabokov was an unashamed literatus intellectual who had read everything, and he loved reading great writing, and you know he he lived that twenty four hours of the day, except when he was collecting butterflies. So, you know, and and he wasn't um, like. A real American-born writer is often a little bit apologetic about, you know, I'm not a bricklayer and I'm not a soldier, I'm a writer. 
But Nabokov didn't apologize for any of that. And at the same time, he got along very well with ordinary Americans. He, he made a lot of very close friends uh, among amateur butterfly collectors, and he, he visited with them all over the country. And uh, so he had a common touch when he wanted to summon it. So the, the hero of my novel, The Savage Professor, is a retired epidemiologist. I mean, he's already kind of an intellectual, but he happens to be somebody who has read a lot and was born in England. He also isn't really ashamed of being an intellectual and um, doesn't apologize for it. So I, I think maybe I felt a little freer to, to write about that kind of a person. Um, I stuck him in a, a blood-soaked thriller genre uh, format so it's not like he's you know up there in the high empyrean and uh, you know it's it's a very earthy story so but there was a like a little bit of a cross fertilization I, I think have you been a writer all your working life yeah pretty much you know I've never really had an office job although I um, in the in the 90s um, I was lucky in that I met a, a great guy who worked in uh, uh, HR communications at Bank of America, and he began hiring me to do freelance writing. And then I started doing freelance writing for Sun Microsystems and Wells Fargo, and a whole bunch of corporate places. And uh, it was just enough, you know, to save my bacon various times. And you know, I was raising a daughter, but no, I really have been just a writer, doing all kinds of other stuff, but haven't had, like I say, an office job. Um, and you know, there are many, there were many dark nights when I badly wished that I was, you know, had a salaried office job. And somehow, you know, I would get a couple, a couple of other breaks, and you know, somehow s- staggered along. And I'm, you know, still staggering. But so you don't feel like you ever made it in any sort of final way. Well, uh, you know, I, I. I guess I have no doubts that I am a writer and a you know one who writes books that get published and uh, you know have I have a readership and I'm very grateful for all of that you know I'm, I'm, I'm clearly it's too late to do anything else but uh, you know as far as uh, enjoying you know the royalties of a Stephen King or something like that you know that's something I can only lust after uh, but you know I somehow have managed to get here you know get to this point. It's a career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and I, I have a, uh, a young cousin, and he's a, uh, a documentary filmmaker and an editor, and he also has had, you know, he's put together a career that's, you know, he has four jobs and this and that, and, you know, and somehow a documentary comes out every two or three years, and, uh, you know, the story of what creative people do to, to produce these things... You know, it's, it's, it's immense uh, sometimes. You're not thinking of taking up uh, Lepidoptery anytime soon, though? No, I don't, I don't think so. Well, I wish you every success with uh, Nabokov in America and The Savage Professor and wherever else the muse takes you from here on out. Robert Roper, thank you very much for talking with me. My pleasure. Robert Roper's latest book, Nabokov in America, On the Road to Lolita, is out now, available in a bookstore near you. You can find out more about Robert and his other books, like that most recent novel, The Savage Professor, and links to purchase his books electronically at his website, rroper.com. 
I don't have any books to sell, but you can find more of this show at tespodcast.com. You can find all the other interviews I've done and subscribe to the show. You can also find it in iTunes and Stitcher. But our permanent online home is tespodcast.com. Well, is anything really permanent? Thanks to Tim Dobbs for production assistance with this episode. Tim makes, among other things, a fun podcast called Doomed to Fail, and he's a much better audio engineer than I am. That said, it wasn't his fault that you could hear all those Beatles songs throughout this interview. Thanks, Tim. This has been The Eastern Shore. I have been and continue to be Brock Winstead. Thank you for listening. We'll do it again next week.
have been listening to the eastern shore here on bff.fm best frequencies forever as always i appreciate you listening and i need to tell you about something important we are bursting at the seams in our little studio here in the mission i'm in here right now and uh there's there's a family sleeping here and i think they sleep in shifts with another group It's San Francisco. It's crazy. We need your help. We need your help to build a second studio. Studio B for BFF.FM. So if you head to BFF.FM slash Kickstarter on a web-enabled technological device right now, you can help us do that. Your pledge will help support more shows, more events like live performances, more music, more fun, even better frequencies forever so we would really appreciate it if you would go to bff.fm slash kickstarter throw a little change our way as you'll see there on the kickstarter page there's all kinds of great stuff that you can get for pledging you can co-host a show here you can have a party in the secret alley here in the mission you can get buttons and t-shirts and things with bff.fm written on I'm wearing I'm wearing the t-shirt right now in fact I mean you not the one you'd get you'd get your own a fresh one in your own size again all this can be had 
You can even get a studio, you can get the studio named after you for the low price of $5,000. Again, that's bff.fm slash kickstarter. Thank you. We appreciate your help. Now, stay tuned for San Francisco People with Frank Garza here on Best Frequencies Forever, bff.fm. Frank Blackburn. My name's Peter McKenna. Hello, my name's...